This is Swampside Chats. A podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This episode, we're joined by Rob Lucas to discuss two essays from him, Error from Endnotes 5 and Feeding the Infant. One time we were plumbing the, uh, I don't know, like, uh, Jake and I have sort of, like, fallen a little bit out of touch with the social media accounts, and, um, you know, we were just sort of, like, going through some of the mail, and we got, like, you know, we got some fan mail, this, this dude whose name looked familiar, and I was sort of, like, read into him, like, oh, shit, that's, uh, this is one of the guys from Endnotes, it's like, uh, wait, he's a fan of our stuff? And it took, it took me a long time to process that, because... You know, for a while, as a sort of, you know, communist intellectual on the internet, you know, I had a sort of antagonistic relationship with EndNotes because it was telling me that there couldn't be a workers' movement. And I'm like, no, shut up. Shut up, you know, black pill intrusive thought. Um, I think you'll be heartened to know that online, within the sort of revived, uh, you know, zombie sort of old school councilist circles and, you know, everything becoming revived, everything old is new. There's a way of, of shutting down communizers. It goes, okay, okay, subsumer, which, so you know, despite attempts to nuance these claims. Uh, That's, uh, so there's a new, there's a, a neo Ked Kaczynski uh, milieu, as I've just learned, and there's a, a what, and there's a neo kind of uh, counselist milieu on the online. I'm just yeah. left again, uh, and and uh, and so the old ultra left debates are rearing their head again. So I, I, this is all this stuff's passed me by since I've been in parent mode. Well, I think I think a lot of it is, and I mean I'm certainly a case study for this as well. It's sort of like it, there isn't, especially in the United States too. There isn't a lot of institutional continuity on the left, so you just kind of discover these things and. Because they're connected to a mode of analysis that is very illuminating of the society you live in, I think that maybe gives it a little extra juice that allows you to kind of extricate it from its historical context and get really like super juiced about it. Even though, again, these are like debates within the Italian left from like the 1920s and 30s, you know what I mean? And so they just, they just a lot of people, you know, you sort of have to go through and look more and more at the broader historical context of these debates and then you see how it is historically situated and you can look back and sort of say like, OK, um, you know, yeah, I would have been a Maoist, too, if it was if I was like a French student in like the late 60s. You know what I mean? Or I would have been I would have been a councilist if I was in Holland, you know, in the 1930s or whatever. The, the waves that are happening now where you're getting kind of uh, you know, like 18 year old Maoists. And well, that that's like an old old phenomenon, I suppose, in, in Internet time already. <laughs> right. But um you know, you can, I mean, can, can you imagine sympathetically how someone becomes an eighteen-year-old Maoist in the, you know, the, this this moment in the same way that you can sympathetically step back to the to 60s, 70s France? Yeah, yeah. In some ways, it's actually kind of a similar phenomenon 
Because a lot yeah. of the French Maoists were basically looking at what was happening in, in like China at the time and turning it into a proxy for their own like regional inter like academic and leftist disputes. Modern day like internet Maoists are doing something similar. I mean, I'm not sure what their tip is like because internet Maoists have been a thing for a while. Like there were even like you know in the early 2000s there was Kasama and all that stuff. I don't know what they're doing now, but I feel like a lot of times it's just people who are essentially like black pilled about the first world working class and want to, you know, identify a revolutionary subject that is like outside of their life so they can, uh, you know, uh, free absolve themselves of any responsibility to do anything. <laughs> well, that's fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I suppose a lot of like the sort of, I guess, I don't want to just say identitarian, but it's like a whole mode of like, you know, post-material needs society stuff where politics isn't so much about who has bread or not. You know, everyone has some kind of bread, um, you know, in this idealized model. But, um, but you know, you're working out your soul, your individuality <laughs> through your politics. In well, way. you know what's crazy, by the way, just a quick aside. Right. Apparently right. my local Food Not Bombs became Maoist. <laughs> right. Well, they, were pro- they probably just became Maoist by trying not to be racist. You know, right, and just sort of well, okay, and just sort of like, just little shit, like ship of Theseus, like little bit here and there, and you, you know, one day you wake up a Maoist. I mean, there's a sort of dark thing that I've seen among political identity, the cybernetic loops of the internet, um, that has me a bit black pilled, and maybe you know something that's a little kind of like conti- continuous in my sort of work is a sort of penchant for trying to reconstruct a little uh, the sort of special, you know, determination, causality, whatever, that productive forces can have. And something that truly bothers me about the big feedback loops of today is where you could take something like the the kind of like Maoist movement that was positioning itself against, you know, the dong click in China and then against capitalist restoration in China, which was this pretty, you know, it was sort of like a unique ultra Maoist, ultra left, like analysis, you know, and make that identity that like, you could turn it inside out. You could subsume it essentially, right? Like you can, you can make that identity still, even the refined ultra Maoist stuff, pro-China in its present form again, using the right state actors positioned in a botnet, playing with what people already want to believe because, you know, unfortunately there is a sort of logic to human nature, contra Bjork, like there is sort of a, <laughs> there's, there, there's ways that we can be played as it turns out, like in large numbers <laughs> and state actors are good at it. Uh, you know, not to be too like, it's more dispersed than just, you know, they put some cops in the right places. But there's a distinct, there's like a big turn in sentiment, like using people's political identities, using what people want to believe about themselves. That has like, you know, me feeling not so fresh, like me feeling not great about the capacities, technological capacities of, of communication as we have it, the way that it, yeah. It spreads this like kind of exploration of identity in a way that's really 
you know, uh, uh, profitable uh, ball. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's good in a sense, like, and, you know, I've certainly gotten a lot out of that. However, you know, it, it then can use it against you in like the Foucauldian weird way. That's that like big paranoia, that big black pill is sort of the, one of the things about the internet, like the, the, the chthonic like structure of the internet that always struck me about like the way texts are written in 21st century communism, starting with like nihilist communism, like, and like the DuPonts and they're like distinctly like, you know, back alley of the internet, like sad Frenchman, like <laughs> kind of tone they have about, you know, telling you how, you know, everything's a, uh, I, I encountered the, that bleak passage about in, in, in the DuPonts shortly after my father had died. <laughs> like, and, and there's this passage about like making, making Marxism into the worst, like the reverse of cognitive behavioral therapy, making Marxism into like the worst thing you can think, most structurally depressing and irredeemable like world that you could like, and I remember h- hitting too hard. Remember, it just hidden too hard. It was too dank. The meme too dank. The Nikon was too dank. Like, and uh, I don't know. There's there's this tone, and what it's really good for is provoking your enemies into misrepresenting you, and so they can't be part of the conversation. And that's something I really always appreciated about. I've always appreciated it and not modeled it for most of my life. I haven't. I, it's uh, something I appreciate in like textually sophisticated works, like I don't know, Baudrillard or Endnotes, where you can or or the nihilist communists, where you can easily be like, you can easily kind of what's the word? You can caricature them because they invite a caricature as as a sort of uh, you know as a means of saying we should do nothing. For instance, like you invite a caricature. And if somebody takes the bait, you kind of know where they're, where they're at. It, it's a way of having a better conversation. DuPonts are very much into playing that kind of game, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, and they do it well. Uh, I'm, I, mean, I, I quite enjoy some of their writing. I think they hate endnotes, uh, to be honest. But um, I, I could see that, especially the, the recent... Um, one of them kind of went on a neo-reactionary kind of bent, I guess. Yeah, exactly. If I'm... Correct. I think there's so there's two of them, but I think the one who went in that direction is probably the one who's not the most interesting, actually. Um, Obviously not. The more sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's the, you know this uh, one of them has some very you know some, some has a nice way of writing and some very kind of interesting, subtle kind of sophisticated angles on things, and I, I think that's they're not the same. They're not the, the neo reactionary wing. I appreciate their their provocations and stuff. I guess the the end notes thing. Um, we in terms of the identity question, we um, we were always quite or a, com- a common sort of theme in our discussions was was a, an opposition to to the word we. You know, the, mm. the, who are we? You know, what what is our position? You know, the the, the, the forming of a group line. Uh, a group identity and so on. Um, there was always a sort of conviction that that, that was something to be kind of attacked and uh, or fought against or, or suppressed or, or whatever. And of course, it's not realistic, right? Because um, you do 
you are a set a determinate set of people talking about specific a specific delimited set of things so it's not like you have no identity whatsoever mm. but um we were always quite reluctant to say this is our program or whatever you know in the way that leftist groups typically like to do or, or to positively affirm our alignment with some position on when the when the french revolution when sorry wrong revolution russian revolution went wrong there has to be some kind of active political project you have to be entering into for there to be a reason a strong reason to do that yeah indeed and i, I mean it doesn't it typically doesn't stop leftists from doing it right but um but yeah to be meaningful you need a strategic context right where taking a line on this or that thing actually means something and for the most part i mean people who have been involved with endnotes have been involved in struggles of course right but um it's not like we've been we, we weren't like the situationists in 68 you know? <laughs> right <laughs> ever so uh or it's not like you were gonna i don't know like join labor and be like a faction within labor or something <laughs> yeah, well, well, you know there was the dsa communist caucus wasn't there <laughs> it just, yeah. still exists so uh, actually that, i think that was some of the first um contacts of our discussions were during this a sort of hopeful upsurge in the corbin campaign which had its sort of you know mirror in the united states around sanders yeah um, never quite the same but i think you know i think at the time you're quite sympathetic to people being like you know for all the just empirically like there's i don't see i don't see no workers movement but there's a bunch of young people in brighton who want to make this like kind of soft anti-imperialist guy like labor and like the the pm yeah the only people in Britain at that time on the far left who were opposed to Corbyn were wingnuts, right? Mm. Um, you, you know, most most kind of serious anarchists, trots, whatever you, you know, whatever kind of leftist, far left, whatever uh, position you were coming from, most people thought that it was a necessary struggle to involve yourself in, right? And yeah, I was sympathetic to that personally it was it was where the struggle was at in the country at the time i didn't have any illusions that we were going to like capture the state and kind of legislate social democracy into being and uh, that would be one step towards utopia you know I, i never really thought that but um but it was pretty clear that that was the most dynamic moment of struggle at the time you know so um so that's the place where where you put your energy you know it, yeah, well, it's, it seemed like that, um, for the first time, program wouldn't be this identitarian signifier, right? Like, program might be uh, something that might actually have some kind of relationship to, like, whether, and whether one wants to even legislate policy or not, it's an improvement because it, there's an instrumental rationality directed virtuously, essentially, instead of, instead of people who push instrumentally uh, irrational strategies who must have some other underlying rationality for doing so. Like, because so many of the strategies pushed by the left, and now I'm thinking especially of, you know, variants of many strategies that I was sort of like defensively try to reconstruct and favor across Swampside chats that have, you know, more or less just sort of abandoned the notion that you can have like a, a, a an electoral body that withstands the winds of a of an incentive structure i'm gonna say without like you know some external power base but even so 
something like that could only ever dip in and out because otherwise, you know, incentives, like these incentive structures are always more powerful than our like moments or, or the things that we have or something. And, uh, I've, I've always been like, but I, but I'm sort of like constitutionally, no pun intended, like, I don't know, like against my, the better angels, my nature, I'm sort of a, a red blooded American or something. And I think I just can't live with the idea that electoral, you know, that the, the democracy doesn't matter, you know, that electoral struggles, like the political stuff that like, you know, like, you know, we can't like take power for people. You can't fight people's battles, but you could like, I don't know, use your nerd brain to try to like help those people like, and, and, you know, maybe use like, use the electoral apparatus. You know, there's just like, there's just very understandable hope. You live in the society. And, and you, you want to be a good, like, participant. You have this, like, long-term latent idea like, that you're going to, I don't know, that you're going to do it through the electoral channels. Like, um, and even even when the evidence is against that. It took me a very long time to sort of break with a, like, vote in a different mode of production kind of viewpoint. You know what I mean? Like, uh... Like, no, and you know, like something like that is a, that's like a hard thing to swallow intellectually and like develop, like, uh, and then, but, but even so I, I, I can't help but want to engage with, with, you know, what is there. So like electoral tactics, I, I've always felt like had, had to be on the table because it's like, it is what it's, what's there. It's what's there, right? And, and, I mean, I don't think you have to have any illusions that, that you're going to get to revolution through it or, or whatever. <laughs> but at least sort of taking an interest in what's actually happening uh, and and when it when there are moments of significant polarization or crisis within those systems, seeing scope for you know for radicalizing situation. And I, you know, in the, in the British case, we really did precipitate a crisis within one of the two main organs of the British state, you know, the Labour Party. It was, it was, it was a disaster for, for the uh, parliamentary Labour Party for a while, at least, you know, they obviously, they've got the, got hold of the reins again. Now, well, uh, he had to be well, shut it, down. It, it, he didn't just get folded into the next administration like Bernie. Like, no, no. It, it, yeah, it was more like a, we induced a kind of crisis, which then, kind of, through the the internal dynamics of the sort of Brexit post Brexit situation, and the electoral cycle, kind of ended up crumbling under its own weight, and then and then just by default the uh, the kind of the Labour right resumed control. Well, and Corbyn unfortunately basically threw a lot of his homies under the bus. Uh, during, because the whole like the anti-Semitism thing was essentially a witch hunt to smoke him out. I mean, let's be real. And his, his, his lack of willingness to stand up to that as a, basically a smear uh, was a big part of what screwed him. And it dogged him his entire time when he's there. I think, um, yeah, it was it was disastrous, that whole that whole thing. And he could have been a lot stronger, for sure. There's, there's still the structural problem of when you're doing electoral politics, your money has to come from somewhere. If you're doing anti-imperialist politics... There are kind of alter imperialist politics that can fund you 
And that's pretty much it. And and some of those people do have, like, weird anti-Semitic, like, edges to their, like, you know, national kind of, like, ideology or whatever. Well, yeah, but they'll say anybody who says, like, a bad thing about Israel is anti-Semitic, though. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Like, now, most listen, of the time, that's what that I, means. I li- listen, like, I, I'm familiar with that. I grew up with that. I know about, like, I, I, I couldn't say a bad word about Israel at the fucking Passover Seder or something because of that shit. But, like, but, but it took me a long time to look harder and see that there are actually people who do leverage, like, uh, the, you know, the real injustices of Israel for, like, you know, anti-Semitic nationalism. It's there. It's there in the anti-war movement. It's there in the, like, an anti-imperialist stuff. Yeah. These people exist, right? Uh, for sure. Yeah. You do encounter them here and there. But in general, they're a very minority tendency. And um, unfortunately, yeah. their, their, their mere existence was was, was used to, to sort of imply that practically right. everyone... Um, well, left of the of sort of Keir Starmer was, and that's yeah. right. But that's the, and that's how they got him because it wasn't just that he was like chicken. It was also that he is a good person and had a sincere desire, you know, to deal with this as and take this problem seriously. But you know, like you sort of see with like the, like show trials in general, it's always the people who have a sincere desire to do the right thing who get fucked, and the ones who just go, "No, I'm cool. Fuck you," are more likely to get out scot free. You know? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think Corbyn was singularly bad at being in that role of right of, of being a, he's just not a fighter right he's, um in that the, the way that you have to be and yeah. that's to his credit in a way because a lot of the people who are fighters in that political sense are not, are not yeah. cre- no but, but you know, machiavelli and sociopaths yeah you're not you're not you're not riding with george galloway <laughs> well there's a there's a guy who's like the counter like the the counter example of someone who's just like, yeah, fuck it, anti-Semitism, whatever, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, this is my political coalition. Suck it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I want to, I want to, um, I want to zoom out a little bit. So, but here's the thing about okay. So it's like it's not just like the vagaries of parliamentarianism that always links up with the problem of nationalism, and like in addition to like parliamentarianism or you know elections being like the domain of how can people conceptualize politics. At an even broader level, nationalism is the framework with, within which people understand politics is taking place, right? And that's sort of the thing you have to overcome. I think, honestly, at this point, even to form like some kind of like a minimum program, like there's no way you're going to be able to accomplish anything unless you have like a significant enough like space that you could, you know, feasibly do autarky. You know what I mean? And you're not going to be able to do that within almost any like national context. In any country, really, um, no, but yeah, I mean, like, I, 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 but I also want to. I think this ports a little bit into the pieces um, that you wrote that we read through uh, that I wanted to talk about um, because you know my portal, like I was like a little my political background. I've talked about it before on the show. You know, I was like a little junior Republican. Then I read the Communist Manifesto, and I was like, this is pretty tight. And then I kind of dropped out of paying attention to politics for a while. I portal back in though was Guy Debord and critical theory and all that stuff, right? The whole, like, uh, Lukacian tradition of, uh, like, mid like mid to late 20th century Marxism. And that stuff all has a tendency, and this is something I've come to realize in recent years, um, of creating this totalizing picture of capitalism that is so all-encompassing that it's, it's impossible to imagine any kind of exit out of it, right? And what I, what I thought was really great about 
um, what your articles were doing were sort of reminding us that like capitalism is a very specific set of relations. It's a determinate totality um, that exists maybe within like the broader world system or whatever. And that a lot of it's more totalizing uh, concerns that we associate with it essentially emanate uh, from the political state. Uh, did I read that correctly? Um, could you maybe care? Would you care to like expand or elaborate upon that a little bit? Or I mean, that that's the feeding the infant text more than error, right? Um, yeah. Um, obviously, there's a lot before uh, on this question of totality before you get to that kind of point. But I think that's yeah, that's. I mean, it, it, this this stuff towards the end of that text is kind of more tentative than the, the rest of it, which is more sort of tightly worked out, I guess. But um, okay. it's more of a it's it's a kind of conjecture, I guess. Like, why why do we? Uh, what's the substantive social basis for our our kind of intuition that the world is totalized in that way, right? That it that it does constitute this kind of singular all-encompassing whole that we're that we are kind of captured within and um so yeah i've gone through these various sort of marxist arguments and unpicked them and i don't think you can quite make the mode of production play that role yeah because there's always there's always this problem uh, there's always this debate of like where is the mode of production like how does it interact with other modes of production can they coexist simultaneously is it like a historical periodization or is it you know Let's start from the, the uh, let's start from the beginning. The specific place where it starts is these two answers to the intractable question. You know, so we're not talking about some radical obje- objectivity of matter. We're talking about the socially f- formed stuff, like the, the you know, what do we do with it all? Do we keep it running or do we burn it down? It's like you know, keep it running, you know, because oh, we like it when people are alive, or do we burn it down? Fuck it, you know, and you move on to the sort of like broad like a broader theme is is this an of you know are we talking about events or process what like what is the formal thing that we're dealing with like when does it start how does it end what it ends you know what begins <laughs> right like, no like and this is very good it's very good that we're reading this after the last episode where we basically covered something from a guy who's like no uh, in order to de-alienate mankind, we need to burn. We need to collapse every smokestack. We need to burn every Nintendo in a giant bonfire. You know what I mean? Like we need to we, we need to <laughs> we, blow we, up we, every dam. We can't reach the technological level of Easter Island. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. So I think so. I mean, obviously, Ted Kaczynski comes up in the, in the, in error, uh, and and that's because I think, I mean, obviously, Ted Kaczynski himself in his actual text has his own his whole own idiosyncratic worldview and worked out positions of sorts but but there's a way in which that ted kaczynski uh position plays a certain rhetorical role in uh not just in leftist debates but in general right the, the, this idea of a kind of well again it's back to the burn it burn it all down angle you get these I, what what these texts kind of came out of is is a, a sense of frustration in these debates sort of within and around endnotes and people criticizing endnotes and stuff where you'd get this um this polarization between this stupid caricature where where it's like oh you just want to you want to you know shut everything down and 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 we're all going to die 
on the one hand, or, or oh, you want to keep everything running and, and we're just going to have capitalism forever, right? And like the, those, those two positions were, were all that there was, right? You, and you're just stuck with one or the other. And uh, I, I was puzzling over that as a problem, like how to get out of that rhetorical bind where you just, you have to kind of take a line on either side of that. Um, so, yeah, so the point was to try and un unpick all of that um, structure. This is me opening another beer, um, trying, to, trying to bring myself down from the, the matcha. Um, Cheers. Um, uh, so, yeah, um, we're kind of rambling a bit all over the place here, but um, the. Sorry, yeah, like we, we both have ADHD never. brain, so that's kind of a problem. I'm sorry. Um, so. Um, Yes, I, I think essentially that there, there are, you can see in leftist discourse, revolutionary discourse, etc., or, or you know maybe more broadly sort of social discourse, certain kind of recurring rhetorical structures, right, which just which become these kind of structural binds to, to your capacity to think almost, and that that Kaczynski poll is uh, is one of them in in the in the question of around the question of sort of fundamental social change or revolution, you know, um, we're going to just have to, yeah, we'll go back to pre Easter Island. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, well, I mean, yeah, it always, I mean, yeah, like the, the totalization that takes place where like the critique of the capitalist mode of production becomes like a critique of capitalist society. Um, I think it's, it's that, and maybe for people who aren't even Marxists, there's just a sense that there's so much complexity to all of this it's hard to even determine, you know, like how you would even adjust it. I mean, it seems like I'm just I'm just thinking I'm just spitballing here. I'm just like thinking out loud. Like, it seems like the the thing that Marx has always tried to do, and that Marx has always, at their best at least, have tried to do is you sort of look at you look at this productive apparatus, and you look at and you think to yourself like, okay, if if this was being managed rationally, what might that look like? Um. And how can we? How, in what way can we move the needle so that we can steer this thing in a direction that isn't going to be as you know destructive uh, or as you know dehumanizing as it currently is? I feel like that simplifies things a little bit, but it's e but it's it's uh, it's better than this instinct that I think, and I've I've certainly defaulted this as well of like we need to we need to wipe away like the social habitus of like every person on earth and get them out of like capitalist mindset. You know, like this is the kind of thing that gets people who to think like, if we just put some LSD in the water supply and everybody just had a massive reset, like they would be able to, they would think through like a better world. You know, it's an imminent break, right? Like, uh, and yeah, the, the, what I, what I love about this paper and it just you know it mirrors so much of what I've been kind of struggling with lately is the eternal recurrence of the fucking metaphysics. In, in our conversations, which I don't say this because I hate metaphysics. I actually love metaphysics much more than most people who are engaging with, with, you know, leftist theory, especially people, you know, in the dialectical tradition that think that they're immune from metaphysics. Like, um, but, you know, I kind of like approached metaphysics before I was ever a Marxist, just in the, you know, thinking, oh, I'm thinking through questions of the universe. And I, you know, it gave me, I'll always appreciate that kind of way of combing through, you know, ontology, because it left me in a place where rational people could disagree in this, like, beautiful pluralist vision. Like, and, and in a place that I wish 
you know, wish beyond pious wish that like radical collectives that had ethical things in common and had like, you know, central political tenets in common, like could squash beef on specific theoretical matters, like, and, and kind of, you know, as long as it's within this or that bounds, there's so much room for pluralism. This is part of what got me canned, you know, like from projects I've started. This, 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 I was always, I was always hoping for that. It's such a, you know, feels like a pious, empty wish because part of, part of a lot of leftist groups is polarizing identity. I guess. I guess so. There's that sort of. I, I dislike the word dialectical, but I guess it kind of is a somewhat, you know, that there's this sense of these antinomies, at least between these two poles, right? In this high five, this uh, construct. And um, it's, um, yeah, and what it does end up leaving you with is not something that is very amenable to, to simple political position taking, right? And that's that was, I guess, for me, kind of deliberate and and yeah wholly wholly meant um because yeah i'd come to this conclusion that the, in these kinds of debates with these these sort of ossified rhetorical structures where you'd get divided between the primitivist pole and the, the progressivist pole and, and the spontaneous pole and the organizationalist pole and so on um and people would always ping pong back and forth between these these two things it just never really it it, it always felt like uh, nothing was at stake and it was just it was one fantasy arguing against another fantasy typically and um through that sense of disillusionment with the kind of radical left um both 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 ultra left revolutionary and reformist i guess in a way you could say i, I kind of i guess i came to a, a sense that one should try to be as in a sense that the, the true position is is a capacious one that isn't isn't about narrowing down your identity in relation to these abstract theoretical structures that you in a sense they're things that you can play out and they they never will really lead you to to the truth right uh, in, in a, a true identity that is going to give you the party and uh, that, that, that's going to need to sort of lead the proletariat or whatever um so there's a sort of deconstructive impetus to it right um and yeah i guess where i where i end up left at the end of all of that is that i'm kind of happy to be involved in any uh struggle uh with anyone who who at least you know <laughs> is uh, opposed to capitalism as a mode of production um uh and beyond that then it, the things to argue are about argue about are, are tactical and strategic rather than kind of what your line on on the sort of bordigist party is or because when you're going through like the nth version of a certain kind of debate like, you don't feel like you're living your best life, you know what I mean? The, the, you sort of put forward a speculative sort of a transcendental structure <laughs> to these debates that, you know, maybe more, you know, sophisticated, quote-unquote, Marxists would say, oh, that's just like a pre-theoretical kind of thing. But I don't know, it just keeps reappearing. It just keeps reappearing in these debates. 
And like you kind of end up in these different in- inflection points. I, I, you know, off the top of my head, like the one with Lukash, uh, there's a whole like st- like structuralist Althusserian version of this process. The analytical Marxists have a version of this like problem. That's my favorite one, I guess. Like, but you know, they still all run in kind of the same problem. Um, yeah, and that makes me collective, you know. Because it won't say its own name. It's, it's. I think, maybe the hidden reason for the we don't have metaphysics kind of metaphysics, like, is because this is, it's all, this is all like a parametaphysical sort of thing. I don't know, like, maybe I'm, some, you know, I, I was interested in that, and so I ended up seeing it everywhere, but, like, it's like these things end up being like things that rational people with, you know, like in good ethical standing with each other in good faith, they could like work together if there are political stakes in a situation that that can't be the real reason for the level of acrimony that are behind these things. <laughs> like it, it has to, you know, I don't know people that are taking such, uh, incommensurate sort of stances on stuff that, you know, maybe like you have to switch back and forth to get like a good sense of, you know, a situation. Like I do find, you know, thinking about things like highly abstractly and then, you know, trying to, you know, situate them historically, whatever, like, and, you know, kind of going back and forth, not necessarily eclectically, you know, I have a preference for one to the other, but like, it sort of balances out maybe and like overall yeah i mean i guess i guess what i've ended up with through this pursuing this line of inquiry is something like a sense that that you have to combine and oscillate between modes yeah a theoretical mode historicizing mode and politically you know drawing on maybe things like the ultra left or anarchism for for your your the way that you think about revolution or, or Leninism, you know, Bordigism, but, um, but not really tying yourself to one of these things as an identity because, um, because <laughs> you just end up in knots, you know, um, particularly it, I, I, there can be ways in which one or the other of those kinds of, um, traditions or, or identities seems like it chimes with a specific moment, you know, and you can get wrapped up in that and then, another moment comes along and it, it feels like you're stranded again, you know, all the, the, the sort of Jacobin social Democrats, uh, who were, who were kind of, everything was staked on Bernie, you know, <laughs> like, uh, they're in, they're in such drift mode now that some of them are attracted to a, I won't say its name, but a magazine that's interested in combining progressive social, uh, progressive economic views with conservative social views. Let's say. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. So, and so there's a, a way in which the kind of oscillating patterns do some real evil and damage. And in a way that I find really disturbing, I just, I'm, I'm in some ways I have good American national character. I'm nice and millennial. I had, you know, some institutional optimism about the new social democracy stuff and to see it kind of march in that direction and then to see the main opposition within that stuff being like, the kind of like the the kind of like you know crypto Leninism I, I find you know distasteful, if only because I had a hand in building it. Like, 
<laughs> One thing that Elaine Badu says is that we're basically in a period where we're searching again for like the capital I idea that will animate and like move people, uh, you know, in some kind of direction. Like, you know, in the past it was like socialism or communism. But what the what is the I guess you could say implicit subject uh, slash strategy we can use in order to generate power in a way that can push this system in a way that will, you know, help the majority of people. Like that was like one of the things about the Arab Spring was it seemed like for a second, maybe in Egypt, they, they developed this model of basically just having protests in city centers and holding out until the government is overthrown. Right. Um, there are other, you know, in other forms of practice or in other political movements, uh, you know, some people saw in Syriza potential like left unity model that could you could take a bunch of like smaller parties and groupings and um, uh, uh, you know add them all together and it becomes this thing that's much larger than the sum of its parts. And then they win power in the government, right? Look, everybody is looking for like a model slash subject uh, that can carry this forward. That's what at any given time, that seems to be, I think, will probably uh, influence the purchase power of these previous, like, sets of theories and debates from, you know, history. So, like, at some point, yeah, like you were saying, at some point it'll be, like, the Maoists. At some points it'll be, you know, the Sochdems. At some point it'll be council communists, you know. You know, Polanski's um, right, I guess, in, in the case of the Syriza thing, maybe. But, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, the, and these things wax and wane, don't they? Um <laughs> so I don't know where things are at right now on, on that front, but um, yeah, neo Ted Kaczynskiism it sounds like. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've got one foot in the neo Ted Kaczynskiism, one foot in the neo councilism. You know, I'm trying to maximize my. I mean, that's a hybrid. I mean, if someone if someone's that's, out there doing like yeah, um, on, that's like so like like a patriotic socialism or whatever that that oh, dumbass is doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like you, you could crap. do. That's, that's like that's nothing. Yeah, you could do. Uh, we need to get a marketing Ted, firm. Ted Ted Kaczynski Kautskyism. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Uh, councilism, please. You know, <laughs> promo councilism. I think. I think. I think you can. You can sell like even just even just rejiggering like tech in the way that like, that we would probably all mutually agree is good. Would it, would after reading this essay anyway? Like. Um, it would look to a lot of Americans now who are used to the standard of living and are afraid of losing it. It would look like, like some kind of primo hippie shit. Like even, even though in our like radical circles or whatever, what we, what we, you know, probably in our like hearts and, you know, most sound mind think is necessary to keep this many people alive, you know, requires some like really complex stuff that like, famously has traditionally evaded communal management like and you know being like adults don't want to like just sell the world a bill a bill of goods on hope like we want to approach this with our like best faculties like it's it's always been a mystery to me why i mean you know i'm and i sort of mean this sincerely but and i feel like i kind of answered it for myself but but why, like, quantitative and, like, kind of logical modes of reasoning are sort of excluded from the conversation when, 
you know, one of the funniest things at the end of the Ted's Ted book that we read is that Ted Kaczynski says, yeah, you should be really technically literate as a militant. You know, that's probably like, I don't know, like really important. You should really know how to use technology. You know, you should be really like, like, you know, and I think for theorists that translates to being you know, quantitatively literate, like being able to engage with the abstractions that have proven so useful um, to our enemies, but, you know, also have in the way that capitalism has ambiguous, you know, potentially emancipatory channels here and there, like, you know, there are little nooks and crannies. I, I don't know. I've, I've, I've gotten really like kind of sour on the gestalt of a lot of like social media and such. And I think I follow a lot of people in, in feeling that way. And, um, you know, but I, I guess I don't want to overreact in the sense of totality in the Lukashian sense, or even in the sense of like interpolation and in the Althusserian sense, or, you know, and, and, and all, all these modes of like uh, total determinism that keep coming up in, that keep coming up in the literature. I mean, first of all, cause it would make me hypocrite. Cause I'm like talking to people on the internet. I hope, I hope it like changes stuff. You know, I hope people listen to it. Like it's, is always implicit, you know, in these conversations as much as I'm really doing it. Like, because I love talking about this stuff and I would do it off mic. And we almost did. We had to like keep interrupting ourselves to like turn on the equipment. There is, there's always this like, you know, pretty stark duality between the, how determinist our theory is for the good stuff, at least for this, a lot of the interesting and this, like our hopes, what are we doing? What is our intellectual activity for? How can we help? So I guess, yeah, I guess it, um, I would see the the sort of framework that I put out in these two texts as, in a way, loosening that problem or something, right? That um, yeah, because um, if you did if you delimit the the mode of production as as really not the answer to all all questions and. Um, uh, as not as not the sort of grand causal structure behind everything, um, then yeah. at least in negative terms, you're you're opening space up for for other stuff to happen. I mean, you're not specific. There's no positive theory of subjectivity or anything like that there. But um, I don't think I, you know. <laughs> It's normally an illusion when people, it's a kind of fantasy of a theory or something, when, when people actually talk as if Marxism was able to offer that sort of um, uh, an account of, of society as a whole that, that was actually a, a able to explain anything, you know, at, at that level. Well, well, well everything, uh, no, no, like like the, the and, and I think your emphasis is right, that this isn't just a rhetorical mistake on Lukash's part. He really believes the commodity form can explain everything, all the ailments in society in some broad way, like, because that's in, involved in the word totality. And it brings to mind nothing less than, you know, my dad was a chiropractor and he was part of a wave of practitioners in the 1980s who took a look at the quack works of the guy who invented chiropractic who believed that there was something called subfluxations in the spine that 
were the source of every physical ailment. So, okay, like we're looking at the logical structure of this statement, right? And so by manipulating the spine, you could fix every physical ailment. Like in, in the 1980s, you know, basically at the same time, there are analytical Marxists, it's kind of funny to me, um, switch out subfluxation for dialectics, okay? <laughs> right? Like, if, if you think that that, like, dialectical totality explains everything, yeah, you're probably wrong, and that's kind of quack. Like, so, you know, there are evidence-based practitioners that tried to, like, do what worked. And you know what? Like, there was a little bit of a, like, of a practicable, like, uh, therapeutic, like, program out of chiropractic that is quite apart from the quack theory that it was based on, like, um, and I think Marxism is, is more or less like, like, and the weird thing is Western Marxism is like, you were supposed to be, you were supposed to be the chosen one. <laughs> you, were supposed, you were supposed to, you know, d destroy the totality, not, you know, reinvent it, like not take it on, not like become more totalitarian, quote unquote, than the, the, the totality you're fighting or something like yeah i mean so i, I would i guess i i wouldn't want to be um you know suggesting we should sort of throw away our lukach and uh, no that um there's obviously a lot of theoretical richness in lukach and i was heavily influenced by that stuff myself when i was younger um and uh yeah it's great you know and it's kind of intellectually energizing and stuff right but but it can become a bit of a prison mm. that kind of way of thinking and i guess at a certain point i was also reacting against that sense of having be, become a bit stuck in a certain way of seeing the world um and starting to question it and um in, so in the so there's i guess that there's a subtle difference between the two texts um in a way on this question and that's partly about the times when they were written in this in feeding the infant the second one i um gave more ground to the idea of, of indeterminate totality right that um in a sense of trying to give an account of why it might be rational in a sense to it, it why it might be rational to totalize in this uh, this abstract kind of vague way um yeah. why there might be a real social basis for that um and i mean i, I still think the, the the fundamental distinction that's made there in error still holds right which is that marxism the concept of the mode of production is not that right the mode of production does not encompass all of society um it's a specific set of mediations and and it needs to be kept as that, not not treated if it was an answer to every every question. Um, but um, nonetheless, I think there is maybe something about social thinking which does compel people towards this kind of yeah, an urge to 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 think about the whole in an abstract way, right? To to conjure up some sense of the unity of the social world in a way that you can't ever pin down theoretically. There may be a social cause for that, right? It's something about that social world itself that, that makes it appear like that in thinking. Right. It's like, well, it's often gets back to the question of like, you know, is it 
you know, it's like the one or the one versus the two. Is, is it unit? Is it this holistic unitary thing, or is it like this binary opposition uh, that is, you know, at like a like a broader level that's structuring everything? But I mean, yeah, I think you are right that it is better to think. Uh, I mean, because if capitalism is a specific, yeah, a specific set of relation, social relations operating within the world and having effects on just about everything else. Uh, that's a much easier problem to resolve than if it's like if literally everything has been turned into like an, uh, a fucking Agent Smith uh, agent of capitalism, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, I guess the, it makes all the difference whether capitalism is the world or whether capitalism is just a significant force in <laughs> shaping the world. And, the, you know, I'd say it's the latter, right? What well, also explains how I mean, it also explains like the political aspect of this as well. Because, like, a capitalist is both – can be both somebody who, you know, owns capital, but also somebody who um, is a partisan ideological advocate for capitalism in a political sense. In other words, they make sure that, like, the state and the law is designed to reinforce the dominance of this mode of social relations politically. Um, and so, that you know, that can still be – a way to fight back against that uh, in some in some respect if you know if we don't conceptualize the state as being you know entire i mean in some ways it, it it exists obviously to mediate class relations and most importantly reinforce property relations but like it's you know there's still there's still like a political spate way to argue against that stuff that isn't i don't know yeah i so i guess that also in a sense, there is a. I don't like this, this sort of Althusserian terminology of uh, relative autonomy and all that, but um, <laughs> but um, the conclusion that I end up with about the state is uh, at least pointing in the same direction as the Althusserians tried to point, I guess, on that question, um, which is that. Causally symmetry. You know, I, I, I translate it into analytical Marxists. It makes it, it makes me it makes me feel better about that because because there are things from that. There's things from the, like the Althusserian milieu that are like kind of you know people trying to look at real philosophy of science here and there, and tr or or people that break with it and have productive breaks with it towards like more hard science stuff. Like I find a number of them to be pretty like pretty helpful in framing stuff because they leave. They, they do what Althusser can't, and they leave behind the metaphysical baggage of dialectics. And I, I don't mean that because I hate metaphysics or something. It's just that the, this dance is tired, and it's also irresponsible of us to do this. If, if we think theory is so important, we should be more practical <laughs> and less, like, you know, working out our soul like a 90s, like, alt flick or something. I guess the, what you end up with is, yeah, the, there is a sense that one way or another, the uh, the political world and the state is fundamentally important, right? And is a, and it is a problem for us, right? <laughs> that is not reducible to the mode of production. And you know, that's not to say that one need need be a Leninist about it. I mean, it could be right. a justification for an anarchist politics, if you like. There's something irreducible about the need to engage in a kind of struggle, which yeah, which is not, which is never going to be completely. You can never adequately conceptualize it entirely, imminently to the mode of production. 
there, you know, there have been these attempts, you know, through yeah, with t to the, the background that EndNotes is coming out of with Thierry Communiste and, and so on, right? There's, a, there's a, there is this attempt to have this extremely imminent theory where the proletariat and capital constitute, in a sense, of totality, this kind of figure of eight mutually reproducing totality, and uh, and thus you can kind of even conceptualize sort of proletarian subjectivity and and the the organizations of the workers' movement and so on, all of that stuff in some sense is part of the same whole that capital is part of. And and so you have to think in this completely internal way about how you get to revolution. And, you know, there's a lot that's compelling about that as a as an approach. And in some ways it has an element of truth to it, right? Because there really is a lot that's kind of internal to, to the mode of production it, it, because it is so powerful and it shapes the world so much. But it's um, but there's a, there's scope within that for a slip into a kind of illusion where where it becomes impossible to think about stuff which doesn't make sense in terms of the mode of production and uh, yeah nation states is is one of those things that's very you know I, I don't know how the fuck to think about nation states consistently on the basis of theory communists work um, I mean they they have to, to their credit they do attempt to to write about concrete struggles in various countries and stuff and you know have to grapple with these things to, to a degree so they're not stupid on these levels but um it certainly doesn't come easily i think to that sort of heavily imminentist capital proletariat kind of model well i mean yeah i mean when you break it down like the interclass relations like it's it's always much more complicated than that like it, it, it always was like i mean yes like maybe the essential antagonism is capital be proletariat but there's always other classes that are adjacent or involved uh, especially at, like a political level I, I wonder if some of that like the some of that thinking comes out of the fact that you know like trade unionists especially in like western europe were able to maybe secure a more comfortable position for themselves within capitalism and so then and you, you see some more talk about about this too in the united states in like the, around the mid 20th century where it's like okay we're in like this phase where like trade unionism and it, like the incorporation of the proletariat are like a part of capitalism as opposed to being maybe like a temporarily like politically negotiated settlement, you know, subject to revision as time goes on. Right. Well, I mean, I think in, in, in some ways they really were part of capitalism, right? There was a, there was a certain functional character to, uh, to collective negotiation. It, it was in some ways it was good for the capitalism of that moment. Right. Right. Um, so uh, yes, that, that's not completely an illusion. It, the, the, there's, an, there's also there's an alternative kind of opposite illusion that one can have, which is that there's a simply a sort of battle line that moves back and forth, right? And it's just sort of labour on one side, which is non-capitalist, and uh, and you make gains as you, the unions expand or whatever it would it be, um, uh, and you and you make losses, um, but. Um, yeah, obviously, um, the the worldview that Endnotes was coming out of um, was very much more imminent than that, and uh, would not take very seriously that kind of. Uh, well, you could, I guess you could call it a sort of Manichaean model of class struggle or something. Um, but it, it, the alternative, the, the the fully imminent mode, is is not very satisfactory either, right? So again. We're back to uh, sort of anti antinomies <laughs> and uh, 
uh, a problem with, with with those kinds of oscillations. And um, and I think I think something like this attempt to specify the the limits of meaningful theoretical totalization is a way of kind of unpicking that problem um, politically and you know and, and, and thinking about how how uh, yeah struggles can struggles against capitalists aren't necessarily in, internal to the mode of production right because they might be about what's going on at the level of the state in a way that's kind of irreducible for example um, and it and requires a different kind of mode of analysis that, that you know you're not gonna be able to really say anything meaningful about if you're talking about formal and real subsumption or something yeah. this, this, this a point like that would probably uh, be I, I imagine that this the, the stereotype view of endnotes uh, would people would assume that, that <laughs> that's what endnotes think you know well, it's clearly just the value form <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right the value form yeah. Yeah, like so the the Swedish like oh no sorry the Swiss uh, Canton direct democratic forms and like the Saudi monarch monarchy are like just two kind of disintegrating circuits in a state form, and every state is in between them. I don't know. <laughs> that's, it's not bad actually. That's a thesis. Well, the, the um, there was a, an influence of, of of regulation school stuff on on theory communist right and. Uh, mm. uh, that fed into the shaping of, of these debates originally, uh, and I guess there's there's a touch of structuralism to that too. It's in the language, initial volume of endnotes, where cool stylized writing, kind of edgy French guy, and then there's fucking post-Althusserian shit. You're like, God damn it, it's so long. It took me so long to get through that. Like, but, like, and you know, even if you appreciate the thought of it, I'm like, I'm like, you goddamn wizards, like I'm. I've learned something about my tolerance for Althusserians, you know, or post-Althusserians or whatever. But there was always something fishy about that kind of um, regulation school reading of, of, of the world economy as well, I think, you know, um, this question of kind of what what level the, the model, in, at least in the classic Aglietta um, thing, which I think is the main thing that influences that discourse. It's like they're kind of Fundamentally, the, the, the American economy is the, uh, in, in an abstracted way, is, is the conceptual model, the, the key conceptual model, right? Um, but there's this, the, the question of how that actually is articulated at different, within different parts of the world economy and so on. It's, yeah, it's, it's really hard to think. So I, I had a question about, um, about the end of the feeding the infant piece. Um, so, um, so, uh, what's up with that? Like, so, like, what, what, what is this, uh, what is this, like, image? Okay, so basically, I don't know. It seems like throughout the piece you're, like, trying to, like, you, you end with this image of, like, the proletariat as, like, an infant, but that's not, like, a very, it's not a very inspiring image. And there seems to be like the suggestion that there's some way to build off of that, but I don't see how that's possible within that so, metaphor. Uh, they, um, I mean, just a uh, uh, biographical mode. I I, uh, I had a, a small baby that I was uh, I was sort of cuddling to sleep when I was trying to write this text. Um, so, uh, um, 
it's partly uh, it was partly kind of uh, um, metaphorical kind of um, playing um, of my own kind when I I had this period of, of, of doing a lot of sort of late nights staying up with my kid and you know feeding him and and, uh, and trying to keep my intellectual life going at the same time so I guess that's what the, the that metaphorical thing comes out of. But I, I, there's another, there's a third text in a way which um, can be kind of read in connection with these two. I don't know if you guys have read it, which I co-wrote with John Clegg um, called um, Three Agricultural Revolutions. It was passed around an uh, ultra-left book, as we used to call it back in the day. Um, but uh, yeah, I read it maybe five years ago and can't remember anything about it. So that's the kind of missing piece there in relation to this question, which is that um, that uh, there's a if you're stuck if, if there's a kind of strategic bind that you can end up in with um, all this kind of totality chopping kind of um, stuff. Um, there's one kind of uh, way out. Uh, that me and John were entertaining was this um, deliberately reductionist um, means of subsistence centric um, uh, position. So suggesting that the key, the fundamental key thing that uh, needs to be done is, is um, guaranteeing the food supply, right? Um, feeding people. Mm-hmm. And in, in any revolutionary situation, that would be obviously um, of central importance. Um, and just more broadly, if, if, if the uh, core problem and unsustainability of capitalism is comes down to surplusness, surplus population, and that it produces a, a population that, that tends to be, in a sense, contingent to, to the mode of production, who, who don't, in a sense, systematically need to, to be um, maintained by capitalist society. They're, they're kind of an excess. Then the question of, of um, material subsistence uh, is a real one, right? Because that's, it's that need for material subsistence that makes people depend on, on the mode of production uh, fundamentally. And... Um, yeah. Not that you know. It's, it's not that um, capitalism fundamentally manifests as a world of hungry people, right? But you know, <laughs> it certainly can do. And uh, uh, you know, it, it's kind of in a sense it's topical right now with the potential grain shortages, problems, and stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, climate change is going to reduce our capacity to uh, grow food, which is something that. You know, uh, I don't think a lot of people, even, even people who are like aware of climate change, have really internalized the implications of this. Um, but the, I mean, the question is, what, what even? I mean, what is? Because I mean, I guess on some level, I've seen th- this is where it gets into stuff about like, there's a certain um, certain type of leftist who's like very interested, who isn't a farmer, but is very interested in agricultural theory, um, and these are these are kind of these kind of uh, environmental conversations I have really like zero uh, frame of reference to even be able to adjudicate any of the debates in this area. Like there's people who talk about like monocultures versus polycultures or, you know, we need to like grow stuff inside. So I don't even, I don't even know because like there's problems of, 
you know, shifting agriculture production further north from the equator, but the problem is the soils aren't the same up there. And I, I mean, but to bring it back around, maybe to like, are you basically saying the proletariat needs to start growing their own food? Do we need to do like what every guy like who smokes weed like and is somewhat lefty like says we need to like start doing like? But on the scale of the species, right? It's, it's different when it's on the scale of the species. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I think I think it's sort of a pull to the tendency. I don't know. Probably best expressed by Jasper Burns in a, in a notes that is a little more like you know, hey, maybe we do need to disconnect from the logistics grid, grow our own food, or maybe at least re, you know relocalize a bunch of food production, which isn't as much of a crank idea now as it was you know when that was written. Um, I mean, Cuba did it in the 90s. I mean, so this, and, and it was always a part of like a decolonial theory, Samira meme. I mean, I'm relatively agnostic about the logistics question. Uh, I mean, I think Jasper has some good arguments on that, but I don't think that he, I was never 100% convinced um, that, that, you know, logistics is in a sense condemned to be fundamentally a weapon used against us or, or whatever right that, um, right it's that, 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 um, that parts of the logistics system could be broken off etc uh, or you know could could be used but I think the, the the key question there is is at what scale of struggle you're talking I mean I think is obviously when you're when your imagined struggle is is a necessarily a small scale relatively non-articulated struggle then localism makes perfect sense right right but those struggles of that kind are obviously not going to transform capitalism as a whole overnight so um so if you can imagine take the step to imagining struggles of a much bigger more articulated kind then then involving logistics systems yeah i mean i wouldn't rule it out right uh I, it's uh, I, I wouldn't want to stake everything on localism. Um, right. Like there's fundamental. I mean, in terms of feeding seven point whatever it is million billion people now, um, it's uh, you know <laughs> we'd probably have to have some kind of mass agriculture for the foreseeable, right? Um, I'm sure it can be transformed massively. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if, if like the whole world seeing it as a responsibility to grow food for everyone is inherently anti-communist. You know what I mean? Like, like if, or if, if the only way to be communist is for people to only grow their own food, you know what I mean? I think like there could be, I don't know, like there's, there's some stuff, there's some stuff there in capitalist logistics. Not all of it is horrible. And I don't even think relocalization is that crazy. Just like, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think there are many things that there are many ways in which you can imagine relocalization being entirely rational and helpful yeah. for certain things, right? But I don't think it need be turned into a kind of uh, fundamental political line, right? Right. Um, well, so, I mean, some of that's already started, like within the realm of like capitalists, like it just, uh, just you know, basically the fragility of global supply chains that was sort of exposed by the pandemic. Has led planners, you know, all over the place to start looking at relocalizing just a lot of stuff that was outsourced. But I, w- I would say, like, I mean, but I mean, isn't isn't the thing about the production of surplus populations? Isn't that why so much of 
the reduction of labor time is is ideally supposed to be like central in labor struggles so that you have as wide a pool of the population within the productive apparatus as possible but just with the workload you know more i guess widely distributed and less intensive in terms of labor time right yeah i mean i guess so ultimately you you uh, you know um i think one could qualify that in lots of key ways right but uh, um to put it crudely ultimately you would want the residual things that have to be done to be shared as widely as possible right i mean whether of course those residual things that have to be done we would assume that those themselves have to be significantly transformed Um, yeah it's not just a a question of sharing out the same old tasks but um yeah I, i keep returning to the image of the baby because when i was coming across it it, I was feeling like it's like cognitive behavioral therapy for Nikon, like communizer, like people who are reading, you know, Kamat being like, yeah, the human is a ritual of capital. And like, you know, all this like badass black metal stuff, you know, about being meat puppets, like in, you know, very, you know, various ways of describing it, like not even the dead are safe. And, uh, uh, I mean, you know, the, the the Nikons, their their bleak view, um, uh, just all the general ways of saying this is a, this is an ant hill, and people are so dependent, people are so like, you know, penetrated by capital. There's even that, you know, uh, leotard, you know, just basically distilling the French national essence and describing the proletariat as you know enjoying being fucked by capital and marxist as these more or less like you shouldn't do that like <laughs> like there's there's so many like bleak like you know do, like demeaning like black pill intrusive thought you know mind warm metaphors that probably make you worse off for having engaged you know, even even just the idea that the proletariat exists only to be annihilated and, and you know policed in ghettos and that sort of thing. To be fair, like this, but this kind of thinking isn't limited just to like Marxists and post-Marxists and structuralists. Like, you even get the, you know, you again to return to my like you know guy who smokes weed. Like, man, I want fucking Babylon's money, man. You know what I mean? Like, like that same kind of thing. It, 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 I mean, it was kind of perfectly encapsulated in the Matrix, right? Like where, like the film, like where, where this kind of like totalistic thinking can like end up, you know, like literally every person is can like turn into an agent of the man, you know, who could fucking kill you. Right? Like it's it it is it is there is something implicit about it that just as a response to basically seeing this massive complex like civilizational system, you know, and becoming a, like aware of the mediations that like underpin like your very social existence. Some of that's just a part of maturity, but some of that's a part of like, I guess you could call it getting woke or whatever, discovering we live in a society, right? Um, Coming to grasp that stuff is a real mind fuck for a lot of people. And I think it can, it can, that in and of itself can create this kind of vertigo that leads people to like these uh, totalizing conclusions, right? Um, Like, I don't think that's, I mean, there is, obviously something like that within theoretically within like the Marxist tradition, but I think it's also just like a psychological affect that, that takes place when you're, when you start looking at this shit. Yeah. I mean, um, 
that urge to to, to totalize like that. Um, Sorry, what were we talking about before? Did I derail this? <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. I'm just taking my time to think. I mean, this is, I'm being too slow thinking to, for a podcast. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> I was like scratching my chin there and looking into space and trying to turn over the thoughts. But, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry, I, got, I, have, I, have, I have content brain where I'm like, dead air. Oh, shit, dead air. Oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. Baba Booey, Baba Booey, Baba Booey. Howard Stern's penis, Baba Booey. <laughs> Um, yes, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I probably better not not um, turn over that thought for too long. I'm not sure. I, I don't have a I don't have a clear line there. Um, yeah, it's all it's all good. Um, I guess what you're talking about here with like the infant stuff is it's kind of like it's basically getting back to what is kind of the the basic thought behind historical materialism, which is like. You know, when you look at history, you have to keep it in mind that, like, first and foremost, like the the imperative of like every civilization or every form of like human social organization is like it has to eat, right? <laughs> right? Like it has to eat and it has to reproduce itself. That starting from starting as, from that basis as a social analysis is like necessary, but weirdly forgotten sometimes. Yeah, I mean, and it, it's it, it's obviously too vulgar a thought to be uh something that you can really stick with and and and, and settle with uh to to just you know have this kind of um yeah the, the agricultural reduction or whatever I, I can't remember exactly what me and john called it something like that uh but there there's in some ways a virtue in in reminding yourself right uh now and then that you know, especially in 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 a kind of when you get into that Lukacian vein, right, and and you you start kind of your Marxism becomes about kind of literature or cinema or you know <laughs> whatever, right? It can become anything, right? Uh, which is you know it can produce some great texts, right, and it, um, and it can justify all sorts of interesting uh, projects and stuff. But um, there is it's sometimes a virtue in in just being like no it's about fucking food it's about like uh, basic necessities of life right and i mean obviously there's a lot more that goes on in capitalism than that but but that level is is the level that keeps us in capitalism in a sense right it's um it's the fact that we have no alternative way of feeding ourselves fundamentally that, that prevents us from doing anything else um than turning up for work you know so that was the key it's a very simple point right but um it was i guess the the, the context in which me and john wrote that that text making those arguments was i guess it was a bit of a provocation there was a, a, a thing in new zealand that we were invited to speak at which um there were a bunch of guys there who were very influenced by the sort of accelerationist thing and you know and and, and so for them it's all about kind of mm what we're going to do with the algorithms to, uh, you know, how we're going to sort of get the algorithms to, to, to organize communism or whatever. And uh, I mean, I'm not wholly unsympathetic to that stuff, but, um, you know, um, it's like, it can feel a bit cart before horse or something, right. That, um, it perhaps perhaps uh, the fundamental question of what communism is or socialism or anarchism or whatever you want to call it 
can can be reduced to something quite simple and it's like <laughs> it's yeah. not not having to fucking turn up to work for a wage in order to be able to feed yourself i mean sometimes i wonder like i know we talk about like cart before the horse with like programs or in this case like maybe literal programs like in say a computer but like i don't know sometimes social movements like pop off and there's this kind of feeling of like you're caught with your pants down and it's like you know like we like it, you you almost sometimes want to have something like a plan you can hand somebody and be like, okay, hey, look, if we do this, we'll get what we want, you know, as opposed to expecting like I don't know a, some general assembly or some you know some grand like Soviet or something to like have a big deliberation and figure it all out like ad hoc in the moment. I don't know. Yeah, so I guess I mean again, this this was another thing that was I guess part, partly with a, with tongue in cheek as a pr- bit of a provocation, but also some to some extent seriously meant which was you know there were a lot of kind of endnotes has no program and notes has no fundamental kind of um politics essentially right um um it is kind of nihilistic about strategy and 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 so on and you know there, there was some bite to some of those criticisms in some ways right and uh, but i i also in, internally to, to endnotes there was also maybe some sense of dissatisfaction from some of us um me certainly about a sense that you know because there had been this kind of idea that you can kind of read everything from the struggles right you you analyze the struggles and you see where the struggles are going and you try and sort of determine what the kind of the latent potential that the struggles are signifying is you know and you there's a sort of phenomenological character to it but um having done that for a while i'd started to think well actually being a communist or whatever uh, can't just be this purely abstract speculative orientation to struggles with which is which has no fundamental interest of its own right mm-hmm. um, you, you have to be at least implicitly looking at struggles with an interest um, uh, wanting them to go one way rather than another being interested in certain kinds of struggles rather than other kinds of struggles and so on and uh and so thinking through that question of well what is that minimum orienting principle that we have i guess that was what got me and john to that position in that text which is that yeah our minimum orienting position is that the in, in at least the most fun in the most general possible terms our strategy has to fundamentally be about about subsistence right it has to be about meeting subsistence needs first not only right but uh, but that has to be it has to loom largest in any in any kind of speculative strategic scenario that you might imagine um it's always going to be the central first question it's like how are seven to eight billion people going to be fed mm-hmm. um and yeah, it's obviously not something that I, I I I don't know anything about those agricultural science kind of things, like what those actual answers are, right? But uh, but I can certainly say, at, at least at, at the abstract level of of a kind of Marxist theory, that that is going to be a fundamental orienting problem right, for any any struggle that gets anywhere. And that's because, um, again, I guess this ties it back to that these this. this critical thinking around this this question of totalities and stuff which is that 
the fundamental problem is not that we are in some some ontological sense included within capitalism, you know, um, subjectivated by it and all that stuff that you can say, right? Fundamental problem is we're dependent on it, right? We're dependent on it in a kind of alimentary sense. It, um, it feeds us. But that's, that's where that kind of baby metaphor came from. As I say, the biographical background for, for that, but it, it wasn't completely arbitrary. It was I was thinking about what it is to be fragile and dependent you know and uh, mm. and in a sense that's in that lopsided class relation that you have with a growing surplus population it is a case of fragility right you've got this capitalist mode of production that is feeding the world but it's kind of you know <laughs> the rest of the global proletariat is in this potentially sort of abusive <laughs> relationship to its its kind of parent its, its mode of production parent right uh, mm. Where it's, it's it's completely dependent, but uh, in those the, the dependency is, is is not mutual, is it? It's um, it, so it's a very uh, precarious situation. And um, well, if there was the trajectory of maturity that the you know orthodox Marxists were hoping from capitalism, we would have a nice Christian Hegelian structure, and there would you know in the womb, you know, and then out of the womb, you know, the yeah. proletariat would grow into maturity, then then that would be, you know, something, you know. Yeah, in some ways, there is an idea here, right? I, I, um, I, I, think, I guess that is some, some version of that schema is there here too. Although, you know, I, um, I guess in a way where I would want to be um, quite, um, qualified about the way in which one can talk talk in positive terms about the, the inheritance of that pet from that parent right because it's kind of leaving us with a, a disastrously uh, you know, <laughs> heated planet and uh, uh and, and so on right. so it's uh it's not a simple dialectic right that uh, it's not a simple dialectic one of the parts of the metaphor is that it's an independent well, it's a child who, you know, it's formally independent. It's not formally engulfed. And in, uh, in some of G.A. Cohen's early works, where he's actually just trying to spell out what a dialectic is as best he can. And some of that stuff is just so great. And he's, he uses engulfment to describe it. And, of course, pregnancy is the metaphor, the central metaphor of engulfment. And this is where my mind went, you know. Uh, and knowing this autobiographically, that's pretty cool. But, you know, I think it also works in just that, you know, in general, the dialectical metaphors is, is engulfment and the way that, you know, kind of lose yourself in this sort of greater causal whole, ontological whole, you know, depending on your, you know, strain, sativa or indica of dialectics. Um, but, you know, here, there there isn't engulfment. There's dependence, but not engulfment. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess. Um, well, so if you if you are if you follow the um, the infancy metaphor uh, backwards, literally, then it would start with engulfment. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Um, uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't intended that backwards reading of it. I guess originally, but uh, in some ways, it might make sense, right? That um, that in an earlier phase of capitalism insofar as there was more of a mutual imbrication of the, the poles where capital really needed the working class uh, as a whole, 
more substantially than it, that it does when it's got a, uh, a, a very advanced uh, you know, global level surplus population. You know, maybe the, the imbrication of the terms is, is somewhat greater. Um, I, I guess, you know, classically the sort of Keynesian Fordist moment. Um, but even then, even then, it's still fundamentally about dependency, I think. It's not, it's, yeah, it's not, it's not fundamentally about inclusion, engulfment. Uh, it's not an ontological inclusion, right? The, um, it, I think it's always been a, fundamentally about, about um, dependence um, back to the sort of agricultural revolution, the, the original agricultural revolution that brought capitalism into being. Yeah, you don't need like a special methodology to understand like that people need bread. You know, there's a num there's a number of ways people look at it, and that and but there's a, there is a sort of I don't know, I think there's a sort of object out there that's important that we make contact with through stuff like hunger. And when we're in a world of post material needs and we don't experience that stuff as directly, you can easily lose track of but you know it does these 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 kinds of processes do have their own like i don't know their own internal teleologies and even with all the gramsci's and <clears throat> john's like uh leotards and all the all the declarations that you know we don't need te teleologies these kind of structured determined forms you know that we can you know in the in the marxian critique of capitalism the value form kind of account for these mechanisms like uh, you know to a person at least you know up to a certain point of technological sophistication um <laughs> beyond which becomes more abstract but that's also part of the theory <laughs> there's, there's there's something about this that's well it's, it's interesting because this is a sort of fringe um methodological position because with, we have great political respect for the Western Marxists, but are ba basically think that's sort of wrong about something really specific. That that sort of, you know, in general in theory world would put you in line with like I don't know tankies or social democrats. You know what I mean? Or like <laughs> like uh, people that are like very very happy to ignore the humanist like and you know literary side of Marxism interested in emancipation and interested in the broader social critique of capitalism. They're very, very more than happy to, you know, line that up against the wall and shoot it. Yeah. <laughs> like, but end notes lacks that quality. In, in I, mean, any way. I think, uh, yes. I, I mean, end notes has never been the kind of, um, right, well, this lacks that quality. I say like, this is, this is different. It's yeah. I mean, we certainly we we've never been the kind of um, we've never been the kind of Marxist journal that you know that runs articles about cinema or whatever, right? Um, but uh, that's not because we're philistines um, uh, who don't who think that that stuff doesn't matter at all. I guess it's just it, it, there was a very core set of um, questions that was motivating the specific discourse that endnotes had internally which was about you know the question of revolution fundamentally right um and i'd wager that the the aesthetics of cinema you know as, as important that they might as they might be in in um, in our lives in some ways aren't going to be 
that important strategically or uh, objectively in in the production of revolution. Uh, so yeah. I guess that's where uh, <laughs> more or less where I sit on those, those questions, right? I, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't want to be. I mean, I, I'd, I'd, I'd probably want to prize the kind of Adorno writing on music or, or whatever <laughs> and enjoy it, you know, and, and value it immensely and stuff. But um, uh, whether you think that stuff is important in, in um, answering the fundamental questions about what revolution is and mode of production and so on, I think, you know, it's, uh, it's a long way from that, right? Um, but that's okay. You know, there's, again, the, the, the whole... Point, point in a way of, of delimiting the, the totalizations in some ways it, it gives you more of a, a license to value things on, on terms other than, than than this we don't have to only ever ask these these questions we can ask other ones too uh, <laughs> so uh, it's just that in, as, insofar as we're, con we're concerned with modes of production and revolution these are the bounds right that's the uh, that's the thinking but um you know, there's there's plenty of scope for non-reductionist approaches to questions of race or uh, or gender or or whatever as well. Beyond it, you do, not all of it has to be reduced to class. You know, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I, I would hope that the perspective that uh, that is opened up by this kind of transcendental move of trying to view these structures as as, as these kind of view these problems in terms of these structures of discourse and view the the problem of totality as this this, this issue of determinacy and indeterminacy. I think that that's a way of pinning down this kind of problem in order to open up scope to allow you to address these other things in a way that's kind of can be systematic in different ways and, you know, and serious and theoretically and stuff too, right? Um, but on on the, the terms that are relevant that are relevant for those domains, that was a bit of a ramble. I was thinking about the sort of main piece of error, and it seems. Let me try my own trollish restatement and see if that I have if I have this like right, or if this is a misstatement. In in a sense, I see two things going on with this essay that there's a sort of a, a restatement of an idea of collective appropriation of the means of production as they exist. A kind of contra Andre Gors, who is kind of, you know, has a, so it's a, it's kind of close to Ted Kaczynski view. Like, I think <laughs> it's, you know, it's not the same view, but you know, they're, they're fellow travelers. Um, there's a sort of restatement of the reconfiguration thesis for a lot of um, what exists, you know, not the social forms that exist, of course, but all of the stuff left behind by those social forms, if they're overcome. Like, so, you know, maybe a bunch of, I don't know, maybe with the right, uh, you know, I don't believe this necessarily, but, you know, if you had algorithms that weren't designed to, you know, destroy your brain, you know, maybe social media could be okay. <laughs> like, I don't know if it's true, but maybe social media needs to be repressed in some way I can't imagine would be emancipatory. But like all the same, like 
people, you know, once there's a technology, it's hard to suppress without being a fascist or something. So, like, one of, like, it's like a deep kind of struggle that we'll all, like, kind of have to, like, <laughs> have at some point more concretely, hopefully. Like, um, and then also there's a, uh, there's just, there's a, there's a restatement of the transition, like, the concept of, of, a, of a transitional period of some kind, not the orthodox one, not the classical sequence, um, specifically not the classical sequence, but that doesn't mean you just have this imminent moment of communization, you know, that there's this, like, more, this, and this is the clearest I've seen anyone articulate it, this is a, there's a more, there, you, know, you could conceive of communization as a more, you know, structured process, like, it's not so, like, you know, as a, as a sort of sequence, like, I don't know, one of the reasons I've been flirting with the, you know, cyber counselist sort of vision, but, and, you know, my, in my fantasy, the uh, labor token would be called like a pancake or something stupid. Like, I, I, I love it. I love it because um, Panacoak apparently hated the, the GI, a like council principle, but but it, but it's but it's but it fits so well that I can't not do it. And anyway, like one of the reasons I like thinking about this is because it is a sort of alternative in in a way, at least like the way I think about it. There's there's a way of of having it kind of be simultaneous. You have one one bit of the economy is accounted for because there's scarcity or what have you. And then there's a whole free economy, and there there's still some sort of stagism or something. Um, and you know obviously you're not necessarily arguing for this view, but what what you're arguing for is this like alternative sense of transition to the old, like, one bit from state and revolution. <laughs> yeah, I guess. yeah, I mean, I say, I say, like, it will have duration in time, right? Um, and uh, I, it, that, I, that was meant sort of sarcastically, I guess, because uh, against the, uh, um, the, the, Thing which I also named sarcastically is the the great riot at the end of time, which is I think something <laughs> uh, a standpoint which which I think in terms of the kind of general what the the the, the reputation of endnotes right it was always people have or have tended to to read it I think probably partly through the fact that endnotes got picked up a lot by these kind of insurrectionist anarchist types as well and mm. and was a bit positive about some riots and stuff. Um, uh, there was a sense, oh well, and, and it just thinks that it's, there's just going to be a big riot, and that'll, you know, that'll be it. Um, and um, I mean, I certainly am positive about riots in in some ways. I think they, you know, they, they can be. One should take them seriously as a mode of struggle, and they uh, they can produce interesting things. I mean, often riots are more more effective reformist means of struggle than uh, the more traditionally organized means uh, but yeah, that's they're, they're, uh, they're part of the orthodox tactics of the workers movement which was anarchist panacock has a whole little thing on this and his tactics pieces yeah so you, super ortho you know like <laughs> if we, you can out the marxists with 
with riots. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I think for, for me that it was always uh, the, the, the notion of actually what the revolution would be was always, a, in a sense, held as a sort of abstract kind of placeholder or something without without much determinate content in it because I never thought that that one could really give much determinate content to that until until you're kind of almost there in reality right um but um and i think that from the early days of endnotes that was my um standpoint on those kinds of questions and i think probably other members of the group would have broadly been in the same line of thinking but of course there was a sort of ultra leftist opposition to sort of Leninist and um, social democratic approaches to things. And yeah, and that combined with this kind of re- relative kind of positive valuation of, um, of rioting and stuff like that. Uh, and, and kind of, and, and the sort of this way of reading struggles and stuff. It gave, gave people this idea that Endnotes was, was all about just, there'll just be a big riot and that'll sort everything out. And um, so I guess, I'm pushing back against that idea in, in this text, uh, which obviously it's a silly idea. No one can really seriously think that, right? Um, and it could only ever be a rhetorical construct, uh, really. Uh, I don't know that anyone, or maybe some people do. I, don't well, I, I do think there's a tendency for some people to to take on as a sort of tenet of faith, in a sort of like Kierkegaard way, maybe, as a demonstration of the suspension of reason. I don't know. Like to take on something that somebody else came up with in a sort of exaggerated feedback loop. And maybe the person that came up with it had a sort of sense of irony and knows that playing a game or something. But some people would take that on more literally outside the game in a more destructive way, in a way that doesn't, like, it's outside the game. It's not going to work. Like, you're outside of the algorithm. That's a stupid thing to think. That's the only place that, that makes sense. Like, I think that happens. Yeah, I've seen it happen. <laughs> I think it, 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 one way, one interesting way that these things can happen sometimes. I think, uh, in quite concretely, with with uh, this is a, a real side tangent, but with radical ideas, is when you get the trans- translation of of ideas from sort of Europe, from continental Europe and stuff, to an American context where there's this sort of um, strong kind of. Uh, national tradition let's say of, of a kind of um of a certain kind of anarchistic orientation mm. which uh, which feeds into all sorts of things be it you know american insurrectionary anarchism or ted kaczynski or or, or <laughs> a first or a, you know, whatever mm-hmm. um and um i i guess the the american radical imaginary um for certain important reasons is quite different to the uh the French say, you know, and so when you translate ideas from one context into the other, they kind of become something quite different potentially. And I think that kind of may have happened with the communization thing, uh, where it, it became more of this sort of, uh, yeah, more, more seemingly allied to this insurrectionist, um, sort of catastrophist, uh, worldview, uh, not that that's completely alien to the French side, but there's certainly a different emphasis, I think, you know. Um, 
so anyway that yeah that was a, a big deviation from the main the main point um so uh, where were we we were talking about um oh yeah uh, transitions right so um yeah so uh, yes i guess in a sense you end up with I think, I think it's on the most abstract level, something, some kind of transition obviously has to occur, right? Because it can't just be, it can't just be instantaneous transformation from one state to another. Like there has to be a process through which it happens. But then, of course, you know, you get into the antinomies of event and process, um, which I've tried to unpick a bit in this text. So I don't think appealing to either one of those two uh, will get you out of the problem in a sense um but let's let's say at minimum that that the, the shift from the capitalist mode of production to whatever would replace it is something that would have to happen in time and would involve certain steps you know <laughs> like that should be completely uncontentious um and, and that, abstraction. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> the, the fact that um that the the kind of traditional sort of worker state sort of model uh, is not really viable and, you, and we discard that as a as a transition, right? Transition in that sense is not not viable anymore. Doesn't mean that the only thing that you're left with is this sort of messianic fantasy of of a kind of giant global riot, right? Uh, there are other possibilities, and yeah, so that was what I was gesturing at. That there's and that specifically when it comes down to the question of the material world. Um, capitalist infrastructure the whole what would we do with it all kind of question uh which is at the heart of this um i mean again it's, it's sort of obvious that uh, you couldn't just burn it all down and, and sort of um you know start from scratch in an instant but uh, it's also obvious that you that, that merely reconciling yourself with with kind of maintaining it as is is also a, an unsatisfactory uh position so then you end up with obviously the, the only the only term that is left if, if both of those are to be excluded is some version of of the so-called sort of reconfiguration idea right um yeah and uh but there's a lot of potential that scope for that to go in all sorts of different directions it, it can mean all sorts of different things right um and um it seems central to you know what was distinctive in a good way about Marxism. There's a lot of things that are bad, distinctively bad about Marxism, but in a good way, it's that capitalism does have things that it produces that open up unique opportunities. Like, yeah, like we we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Like we don't have to adopt the whole Hegelian Christian like you know way of, of seeing everything about capitalism to say that, you know, there's some just bare minimum stuff that when we do the next society, we want to bring birth control <laughs> or, or HRT or whatever, you know, how, however, how, however far you, you think capitalism reaches in this causal process, like, you know, whatever. I mean, one of the, to, again, to come back to the agricultural question, right. Um, I mean, one can also set, set aside the question of, of how, of whether we should value these things about capitalism. There's, there's also just a simple we're stuck with them, whether you like it or not, kind of <laughs> problem, right? Like in terms of feeding a lot of people, um, and obviously that doesn't mean that you have to preserve capitalist agriculture 
as it is. There, there is presumably a world of concrete options out there for ways in which the world can be fed. But um, you can pretty much be certain that we're not going to go back to uh, kind of feudal models of of tillage or whatever <laughs> so, uh, there's going to be something else right and uh, and and so the, the, yeah there will be a need to to um, to use techniques that have been learned presumably through capitalism even if many techniques because of course capitalist agriculture is immensely destructive and terrible in, in many ways right uh, so this is why i'm slightly hesitant about that some things about capitalism are good kind of story you know i i, I kind right, of right. uh i i sort of would be slightly uh cautious on that front but nonetheless <laughs> that doesn't mean that the, again the alternative is everything is bad because actually there's just some stuff we just have to use right um, and, and we're going to have to figure out from those things which are the things that that are usable in a way that's relatively benign or or can be used with, in a way that's not going to in some other way thwart our intentions you know um one of the positive things about a sort of highly abstracted anatomizing way of thinking about things that you tend to think of things premise by premise and so you can detach them from a lot of it through fucking weird contexts like, yeah <laughs> well, the, the main thing that's supposed to be like the main progressive thing about capitalist technology is like labor saving machinery right like the what's supposed to be good about it is the increased productivity which in theory you know should produce like less if there's you know obviously if the proletariat pushes back would pro- would produce outcomes where there was just less work overall for everybody um i think maybe the big cultural shift that would have to take place is you know, to convince people to value time more uh, than, you know, like the accumulation of stuff, which is sort of the consolation prize you get for selling your life away by the hour, you know. I think it's, it's, it's quite easy to imagine people, um, you know, it's, it's there in kind of mainstream discourse, isn't it? it? You know, there's a whole sort of post-COVID discourse about no one wants to go back to working full-time anymore. You know, right. so that sort of thing uh, is, is kind of close at hand at any any given moment, right? Um, uh, this sense that well, could, couldn't we all just spend more time doing the really important things? Uh, most for the most part, is it, that's a kind of fairly vacuous kind of uh, discourse, but it's there as a constant thread in 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 the sort of thought world of capitalism, right? That uh, some, some right. Sense, right of that which. You know, one can imagine building on. I mean, in terms of the the, the the point about capitalism being fundamentally about sort of labor saving and that's its progressive character and stuff, I think that, yeah, of course, that has to be true fundamentally. Um, but um, the thing, the, the qualification to that point, I guess, would then be that um, it tends to drive labor saving in very specific areas, right? Uh, which, uh, which are useful to, to, to accumulation. And right. if you, if you had a different mode of production, if you were in communism, you, uh, you might not, um, prioritize labor saving in, in, you know, um, sort of, uh, like at, 
budget management uh, in a publicity department kind of stuff, right? It might be more more about the really horrible tasks that um, that have never been made more efficient because, unfortunately, there's someone who's in a situation where they have to work a shitty for a shitty wage to do them, and it's just never been economical to mechanize them, right? Um, uh, I guess that's the qualification to that, right? That there's right. You you probably have a whole different type of labor saving in a in a non-capitalist world right well that's why that's why i'm sympathetic to like formulations about like decadence and stuff because it's it's so clear too that in terms of uh the increasing like rent seeking on intellectual property that's like killing innovation uh or just like the decreasing allocation of public spending to the kind of deep research that produces like genuine innovations beyond just you know saving labor uh, in a very narrow productive sense. Don't, don't forget um, the Hegelian. All that stuff. So, all that stuff is like decreasing. Well, don't forget about the Hegelian Hermeneutic of Gender Freedom, that birth control opens up the patriarchy. That's that's pretty cool. Like uh, that's that's pretty decadent, I think. Right? Isn't that what decadence means? Well, I mean. Different kind oh, of yeah, difference, sorry. I guess. The, 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 uh, is, we're talking about the I, ICC debate uh, one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, it, you know, like it, like capitalism became, for whatever your reason, pick your year in like the 20s or pick, uh, you know, maybe whenever they went up the gold standard yeah, or whatever. That you know Alan what I mean? pamphlet on decadence really helped me connect the, the stuff that the community college, like Trotskyists were talking about to the, you know, the what the grad school, like communizers were talking about. I'm like, oh, I get it. Like, it was like this, like really vital connective tissue. Yeah. So it's an interesting debate, actually. That, so that that guy who who wrote that was one of the people who came with us to to form Endnotes originally, uh, and yeah, still a good friend. He's a kind of classic. But but this, yeah, there's something funny about that that's that perspective that just kind of more or less like capitalism sort of always always been decadent. <laughs> it could yeah. sort of feel like that right uh, or, or for, for the period of its, its highest kind of triumph it's been decadent um yeah i feel like whatever the earliest formulation on that was was probably the correct one <laughs> I, I i feel like it's uh i don't know like you it, it can as long as your like societal mechanism is somewhat like stable you could keep going further and further Reactionaries kind of imagine imagine that you know a society couldn't be socially stable while like allowing for like market innovation and like in like you know real kind of weird ways maybe but you know ha having some emancipatory fringe potentials but based on this like you know monstrous capitalist economy the right wing version of decadence has a kind of hopeful naivete that, um, quote, weak men make bad times or something. But, like, there's a, there's a, a flaw in the historical process, basically, in that there's this, like, I don't know, capitalism isn't, like, maybe ecologically sustainable, but it's, it's remarkably decentralized, and it's... Um, it's it's a resilient social form that would be difficult to succeed and would have like as as much like as we should throw shade at like a sort of like perfect great deliberation 
there would have to be something quite conscious about overcoming something so dispersed. Um, yeah. yeah, well, there will certainly have to be deliberation, right? Um, I guess um, when I threw shade at that sort of idea in that text, I was thinking that there, there can be, in, in some ways, if you, I guess the thought was something like that. If, if you think that the, uh, the fantasy of, of the kind of great riot at the end of time that solves all problems is sort of messianic, then just replacing that with an idea of an abstract idea of of a kind of of organization and deliberation is no less kind of messianic um, in a sense, right? It's not it's not giving you anything that's actually more concrete. Um, even if it's like that episode of uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation where uh, Picard argues that you know that data is data is human or something like. It's not going to be like a, a cool, it's not going to be a conversation in the ideal speech situation. It's not going to be like a Habermasian. Yeah. Um, real, real conversation is like war, not like, uh, <laughs> not like that. And that angle on, on conversation is, yeah, com real conversation involves like offending people and, uh, and uh, you know, hate. But yeah, obviously, obviously deliberation, you, <laughs> it, it can't be a blind process, right? It's a, uh, you would need you'd need some some aspect of organization coordination deliberation etc to to uh, construct something that was capable of of feeding everyone uh, in a world that's kind of falling apart under under capitalist management right um, you have there has to be you know, on some level that it has to, <laughs> a real alternative has to be constructed right which which has mediations organizational mediations it's not it's not just uh, not just going to happen right so <laughs> that's obvious right, right. <laughs> that shouldn't be some some like political some something that you can make a political line out of <laughs> like, this is my position against the people it does have some like research program allegations like or um, implications research program implications i guess like you know like what kind of if you know if someone were to approach you like what's the most useful thing to study to like try to understand the supply chain of like, what's going to be the most important thing. It's like, well, people need to eat. I'm like, okay, I'm writing this down. Like, The state funds that massively. Uh, that's something's going to change. Uh, people are going to still need to eat. Um, we need to understand the state. We need to know how to fucking feed people. Right. <laughs> I guess that's that, that is the that's the program um yeah, yeah. but it, i mean so there, there's also a point in in error as well where i kind of you know qualify that to, to a degree which you know of course like to deliberate to organize these things etc you need means of communication right um uh, mm -hmm. to, to organize food supplies you need means of communication those have to be run somehow so you, it, it can only be a, a conscious kind of bracketing process or, or something like that when you when you reduce things down to, to food, right? It's not, um, it's not to say that that's the sort of final level of analysis that we have to rest at. It's, it's a, uh, it's the reorienting point, um, to, to centralize that. But of course there are many other things that are important and, and food, food is not a sort of self-standing, um, issue on its own, which can be completely extricated from, other kinds of other other social problems, right? Um, so, 
doesn't necessarily get you that far, but it, it, it's at least uh, maybe if if what you're stuck with is that kind of, yeah, uh, this totality chopping kind of Lukacian type of, is it going to be imminent or transcendent? Are we inside or outside of capitalism? All those kinds of problematics, right? Um, it's a way of kind of um, sort of waking oneself up a bit out of that kind of, um, those the kind of stupor that can be induced by those kinds of problematics. Uh, I, I, I see. I quite think this is all like of a, of a piece with the matrix. You know what I mean? Like it's just the matrix is the kind of complex of theories that we've told ourselves. You know, instead of you know doing what we can out of some weird kind of. I don't know, unconscious process, I guess, that people do <laughs> to recapitulate, like, theory as metaphysics and a, a sort of, a, as a way to sort of stipulate their soul and their self. Um, and so that, it, and if we can identify this, we can identify anti-patterns in revolutionary thought. We can help people that are approaching these things to avoid you know, time sinks that are more or less like, you know, a self coin tell pro, like you're, <laughs> you're kind of wasting your own time, <laughs> like in a sense, like an instrumentally rational sense. Like if, if people want to work themselves out, it's totally cool. But like some people really take advantage of this phase of people's lives and you want to kind of intellectually arm those people so that they don't get taken advantage of. They, kind of maintain their own autonomy <laughs> like the, the anti-pattern is is actually yeah that's a nice uh, way of framing it actually um uh, yeah that's it, it seems to get something yeah it, 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 there are these standard standard um, thought patterns and models that, that you can get caught in and, and, and stuck right and uh doing this kind of transcendental move can kind of help you unpick some of that stuff and it, yeah it, it can also maybe help help with some of the kind of um sect shit that can come on the left as well you know insofar as that mm -hmm. is tied to this um, arguing around some of these theoretical structures the first act of communization is not rustification yeah yeah um that was i guess that was um I was uh, pushing back against the, <laughs> the possible accusations. Overread our our emphasis on agriculture as uh, <laughs> as uh, about yeah yeah as about the kind of good life you know that we uh, the, the sort of seventies back to the lander kind of uh, <laughs> you know like um, the good life in in Britain there was a, a really bad sitcom in the seventies sort of <laughs> people people by the counterculture like these kind of middle-aged uh, middle-class people who are influenced by like the counterculture or whatever and decide to abandon their kind of i haven't seen it since i was about five years old but uh, so I, I might might be misrepresenting it but uh, they're, they're probably like some middle management background or something like that and they decide to kind of uh, go back to the land but that just means like sort of gardening in their suburban um, crappy house um, <laughs> trying to live more authentically um uh and and of course failing uh that's what the sitcom's about um so you know we could have that good life 
model of of, uh, of yeah localism and, and going growing our own tomatoes and whatever. Uh, but uh, I, I'm kind of yeah cautious about going too far down that road. Um, I think this is why I say that you know there may be there may be some uses for things like logistics and stuff. Yeah, I think the, the key question is what level of well, how powerful your struggle can get, uh, and and what level of organisation it can articulate. Um, at a certain point, it would become possible to do things other than merely localised cultivation of your own food or whatever. It would be possible to 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 think in in larger scales. Um, it's hard to imagine. Uh, from where we're standing right now, right? You'd have to go through a long cycle of struggles to to get to the, the point where that would be meaningful, but you can at least frame it in abstract terms so that, that it's a possibility and that, that you should not rest on um, the assumption that it, it would never be possible. Yes, yeah, so I, I wouldn't want to say that, um, that it's back to the land, right? But agriculture is very important. And, and the autonomy of growing your own food, yeah, I mean, there is something important in that. Um, yeah, I mean, the trick is, like, land costs money. And so it's, like, it you, it comes back to, like, the political question because it's, like, you have to even create, like, you know, space to be able to, like, grow food legally or not, you know, in a way that was going to get you, you know, uh, get you arrested or something. Um, because, like, you know, it, it's, like, Maybe, maybe the state might like subtract from certain areas and basically just give them up for dead, and you know they can be like the lawless zones or whatever, and you could have like some autonomy there or whatever. But I feel like that's probably not very likely, especially with like increasing capacities for you know state surveillance and so forth. So you're kind of you're back to sort of the question of power, and that's why it becomes the problem of the state still fundamentally, right? Yeah. Um. To, to address that agricultural problem, you fundamentally have to address the, the state problem. Right. Uh, that's the kind of point that it ends up with at the end of feeding the infant. Um, I mean, of course, you know, there may be marginal cases where the odd person here and there manages something different. But, um, but yeah, I guess in, in those kinds of 70s sitcoms that were joking about kind of back-to-the-land types... Uh, you know, there's a point, right? Is that there's a, there's a point in the joke that we, that they try to go back to the land, but they're just in a suburban garden, <laughs> like, right? Right. Uh, that's you know that's a that is a that is a reality. <laughs> um, the and the the idea that you could kind of find some zones of autonomy within this capitalist world system seems pretty tenuous. I mean, you could where there was, like, a failed state or something. Yeah. But then, but then, of course, you're stuck dealing with, like, warlords and shit. Yeah, I mean, we could maybe all the communalization people could move to Somalia and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> fight it out with, uh, you know, Islamists and, uh, you know. Yeah, we could, we could like, get those big uh, riot shields with books on them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we would win. <laughs> Well there's, well, there's one book that may, help, may be able to help you out with it, figure out what to do. Yeah. Small, it's red, yeah. written by a man who knew something about guerrilla warfare. 
Oh, I'm not to make a good riot shield. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, where are we? Um, I mean, it, I, I I kind of a background to to some of the, the tech stuff uh, in that the, the sort of transition question thing is that I you know I've been a programmer for most of my working life uh, and. Uh, there's a certain agenda there for me, I guess, which is to, to agree to a degree kind of distinct from the end notes problematic, which is the, yeah, the, the whole question of the free software and all that sort of stuff, which was, that was the kind of cyber communism of the uh, early 2000s. The thing that justified being left and, and a tech person, right? <laughs> and, and then at yeah. a certain point, it seemed kind of, it became very hard to hold on to that. Right. Uh, as a, you know, when, when the world's servers all run on Linux, but, uh, you know, the, the internet is dominated by this handful of firms that are heavily integrated into this sort of security state and so on. Um, so there's a question of working out what, how one should think about technology and, and, the world of computing and, and, and programming for me in all of this. And, you know, one, one answer to that, that some people in a motivated way, I suspect from a, from a technical background, you know, they go, Oh, well, maybe we can use our algorithms to plan an economy or something. Right. And then you start experimenting with that, that kind of thing. And, and, you know, there's probably something in that and you can, you can learn something uh, through exploring those things maybe, but, um, I don't know. I'm I'm suspicious that it it's uh, it plays that kind of activity can play a compensatory role when your when your profession is sort of programming or whatever. It's like oh, this is this is how I get to do my the revolution or something, right? And uh, it's often a bit kind of it's a kind of it's a long way from anything that would actually help anyone, right? But, I mean, right. we we can sort of abstractly figure out maybe how certain kinds of problems might get solved. The thought for me here is that this, there would be so much between us here now in this mode of production and the speculative uh, algorithmic world that is regulated in some sense by computers uh, that it, it it's necessarily a bit of a kind of fantasy thing to play those things out, right? And so the, the question is what the the intermediate phases would be between those two poles. And then for that, you need to think really about the kind of politics of tech as it actually exists now and what role it actually plays in capitalism and, and the aspects of it that are, um, you know, perhaps just fundamentally terrible, and the aspects of it that might not be fundamentally terrible, you know. Um. Well, one thing that is encouraging um, in terms of like the politics of yeah the internet and so forth is like the so far at least pretty effective resistance to the whole Web three thing, and the the collective everyone just deciding uh, actually that's fucking stupid. We're not doing that because <laughs> uh, I mean the the world that like Web three was describing sounded. Uh, it's like it was like libertarian 
you know, nightmare fantasy, uh, where basically every everything on the internet becomes like a source of rent seeking, which is like the exact. I mean, I I think there's probably some stuff in the mix which is less terrible than others. Uh, you know, there are attempts to create, you know technologies which are generally decentralized genuinely de- decentralized and in a way that doesn't involve the financial aspects that have been associated with web3 stuff but yeah the the way in which that stuff became heavily involved in the crypto thing and um yeah kind of libertarian Do, have you guys seen this uh, the the, the uh, hbo series the anarchists no i have not it's just it's on now the first two episodes have just shown uh, that um, it's yeah, sort of midway through, um, but it's it's quite a entertaining anyway. It's a, about this bunch of um, they call themselves anarchists, right? But they are really they're, mm-hmm. they're uh, anarcho-capitalists, I guess. Right. Uh, they um, um, they all kind of migrate to Mexico and um, and try to create their sort of Randian. Uh, <laughs> yeah utopia there and it all kind of obviously all goes wrong um but yes yeah, it's, uh, it's an entertaining uh sort of look at those who those some of those people that actually are and, and i'm mean, obviously they're pretty terrible people a lot some of them are sort of you know um, uh sort of middle class people who've, who've just kind of had a, uh, a sort of midlife crisis and, and think they've discovered sort of anarchism and being free and stuff. And, uh, and they, you, know, you know, they, the version of it they get is, is crypto based and, uh, and yeah. That's remarkably sad. Yeah. The latest stuff on um, like the actual decentralized character. I mean, you had people that have been like, you know, lifelong kind of techie anarchists just being like, yeah, the tyranny of structurelessness. You ever read that paper by Joe Freeman? (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then you, what I actually found more compelling is that the federal agencies actually like, you know, like hired like a, like a hardcore security firm to be like, yeah, this stuff isn't really going to be decentralized when you actually game it out. Um, which is, you know, I think kind of sad because, you know, hey, it, it sounded pretty good to me. Like, okay, like, so yeah, let's find some new possibilities in like uh, capitalism or, or whatever. But I don't know. I, I forget what I was getting to. That, that just like, I like that idea, but like, wow, like, it is sort of overwhelmingly terrible. <laughs> like, when we get to how the, the internet has more or less like enabled more predatory like social forms and like versions of capitalism not to be too like moral panicky about it like it's it's hard to talk about the stuff without getting very like high strung maybe but like you know there like there's more casino-ish stuff like yeah. In everyday life things are like recreation is more openly like sort of milking you nakedly mm-hmm. predatory not always naked but sometimes like and there is I, I hate to say this like because the spirit of those left accelerationists I'm always kind of like in favor of ethically like you know I think 
maybe one of like the shadow parts of a Marxist conversation about like labor and is this sort of conversation around reproductive labor and you know the way technology plays into reproductive labor and there there is some like bare I don't know there's some bare minimum of those progressive possibilities that are like in capitalism but like other than that like <laughs> so much of it is overwhelmingly like um stuff that doesn't need to exist like like and it's kind of like a hard thing to come to terms with considering you know how much of the like like you know just what like we would have to like fundamentally transform life in a very radical way and you know and what i like about this kind of marxism is that it engages with radical theory as a sort of like you know, broader category instead of just limiting it to the one, you know, like or a few schools or whatever. It tries to like, I don't know, knit it into a greater like a theoretical cinematic universe. Let's say, like, you know, n- not avoiding like, you know, like the, the good stuff is is trying to like, like at least like talk about how maybe the systemic logics like interlap or can become like tightly looped as you were talking about with uh, uh, the, the logic of gender, like as, a, as an example of like, uh, how to, you know, systemic logics can come together. Um, as I say, yeah, I think I, I um, think the, a key, t- a key sort of, if anything was going to, if there's going to be one sort of orienting kind of takeaway kind of thing from, from, this text is trying to do it's it's uh, or the error that is um it's in a sense to open up space for those things to be thinkable uh in a way where we don't just always have to struggle with the problem of uh, of whether it has to be tied to the mode of production absolutely or not and that's it for this time thanks again to rob for joining us when we recorded the episode, Rob was staying in a hotel in the United States where he is uh, having specialist therapies done for his child. He's also currently raising money online to help pay for the treatments, and we will include a link to that in the description. And so until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.